we want to keep thinking about how do we solve for that so that we can truly be a democracy uh, and a justice system that works for everybody, no matter where you fall on the spectrum. From Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's John Mitchell, a lawyer, a leader, and owner of KM Advisors. John is an organizational strategy consultant and an executive coach. John is also a graduate of Northwestern University School of Law and the co-founder of the Chicago Bar Association's Leadership Institute. Known as the Purple Coach, John specializes in helping law firms and helping lawyers and their leaders discover and maximize their potential. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, John has been sought after in other industries trying, such as healthcare, transit, and international development, to navigate the new realities of the workplace. Today, we're going to talk about life in the legal profession, often glamorized in media through movies like A Few Good Men and To Kill a Mockingbird and television shows like Suits. The reality of being a lawyer, one of the most important professions to our democracy, is different than those depictions. So, John, I wanted to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. I'm excited yeah. to chat with you today. Yeah. I, the first question I wanted to ask you is about the name. You're known as the Purple Coach. Where did that come from? So it's a little bit of a story. The The purple part of Purple Coach um, is a really important symbol for me. So when I was a very young child, uh, my brother and I, I've got a brother who's 18 months younger than me. We were growing up in a military family. My father was a career military officer. My dad is black, my mom is white. And so in the military, everything has a label. And we were officers' kids, and we were also black kids. And those were just two of the labels that were commonly applied to us. And we kind of got used to those labels. So fast forward a few years, and my father is sending my brother and I to spend parts of the summer with his mother in Roxbury, Massachusetts, a black community in Boston. And the kids there would tell my brother and I that we were white kids or that we were Oreos, black on the outside, white on the inside. And that would be very, very confusing to us. We're like, wait a minute. Every day we're told we're black kids. And then suddenly we're in this environment. We're told we're either white kids or Oreos. Like, What's going on? So fast forward a few more years, getting into our teenage years and, and me in particular, trying to you know figure out my own sense of identity and you know who am I and how do I differentiate myself from, from my parents, like all teenagers do. So now we're moving to England, and my dad is taking on the role as the base commander. So he's the senior guy on this Air Force base, which means basically almost everyone has to call him sir. And all of my friends' fathers, and back in those days, the military, the Air Force personnel, they were the fathers. It wasn't you know, um, men and women like it is today, at least not to the same extent it is today. So my friends' fathers would um, report to somebody who reported to somebody who reported to somebody who reported ultimately to my father. And so I'd be at my friend's house, you know, after school, hanging out with them and their dads would come home from work and they'd see me and they'd chat a little bit sometimes. And sometimes they'd say things to me like, hey, John, we think Colonel Mitchell's a great leader. It doesn't matter to us that he's black. It's the character of the man that counts. And like your dad, he's he's just a great leader. 
And then sometimes they'd say something like, you know, the race thing's not a big deal at all. Like, I couldn't care less if he's black, white, red, yellow, green, or purple. You know, character, that's what counts. And I quickly started to figure out when they started to talk about color and race, it meant a lot to them. That's how they were bringing it up. I also noticed, though, that sometimes they would say something like green or purple as a color. And we don't really think of people that way, right? We think of black people and white people, yellow people, red people. We don't really think of green or purple or any other color. So that idea galvanized my thinking. And I decided that if I could pick a color that nobody knows what it means, I could then define the meaning. And so for me, a big part of my identity, and in particular, my racial identity, was feeling like I wasn't part of a black community. I certainly wasn't part of a white community. I was in this in-between world. And back in those days, there weren't that many people like that. Today, it's very common. Like, you can't even turn on the TV and not see a commercial with an interracial couple. But in my day, that was very uncommon. And so it was one of those things that allowed me to start to define myself. And so it became a really important color. I actually went to Northwestern, which is why everyone thinks that I'm the purple coach. I went to Northwestern in large part because the school colors are purple. And that was really important to me. (laughs) And uh, so it just worked. So now fast forward, I don't know, 20 years. 15 years, and I am going through coach training. So I'm actually getting my MBA at Kellogg at Northwestern, the business school there. And I'm doing an online coach training program. And I show up late one day to one of my classes and I hear two of the students arguing like, oh, Professor so-and-so had this really interesting point. And the other person says, no, 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 the purple coach had a better point. And I listened fascinated because all of a sudden I realized that I had put purple along with coach together for an email address for this program, thinking that I would use it for the two years of my coach training program and then never see it again. And people picked up on the email address and actually started calling me Purple Coach, the Purple Coach. And that's how the name comes about. Oh, that's fascinating. I know from working in the military, uh, the point that you make about how they use different colors, you know, rarely do do, do you hear today white or black. But what you do here is green for the Army, blue for the, the Air Force. Yep. Um, and the color that they use, which is so fascinating when they're talking about joint forces and integrated forces between the whole department, is purple. And, you know, it's the color that sort of recognizes the, the, you know, the whole person or the whole organization. So I was really fascinated by, um, by where that where that came from. Well, interestingly enough, the military has come a long way. And while some people think it's, it's you know, kind of a backwards and a very strict hierarchy, um, the military was at the cutting edge because of legislation, not because they chose it, but, you know, of, of integration. And so while my brother and I grew up as black kids, because if you had even, you know, a couple drops of black blood in you, you were considered by the government to be black. In many ways, it was highly progressive. Um, and, and to this day, in some areas, it remains, I would argue, very highly progressive. Um, and so as, as it has evolved, to your point, you don't hear people talking about like black and white in the military nearly as much. You hear them talking about the service itself as opposed to that individual. Yeah, I remember as a child in the 80s touring the Pentagon. And this was back in the day before 9-11, where you could really walk around the building. And my dad, who is a former army officer who served in Vietnam, said to me, do you know why there's so many bathrooms and why they're so close together? And I asked him, no, I have no idea. He said, when um, the Pentagon was first built, Virginia, they thought they were going to have to follow Virginia law and that they were going to have to segregated uh, bathrooms and segregated um, 
cafeterias. So there's double of everything there. And then my dad said that the Pentagon decided to buck Virginia and um, not segregate uh, not segregate the Pentagon. And he made the point to me, you know, that the armed forces have actually been a huge part of breaking down the barriers of um, discrimination that exist. And uh, I found that really powerful, and it sort of shifted my shifted some of my impressions. Well, it's interesting that you say that because my father um, went into the military for that very reason. He he was trying to escape what he felt was a very racist society in Boston, and he saw the Air Force as an opportunity for a young engineer to get ahead. And he too uh, served in Vietnam, and he too also served in the Pentagon. So our fathers had a little bit of overlap. It sounds like. <laughs> yes, it definitely sounds like that. You know, I, another thing I wanted to ask you um, that's somewhat unusual, um, you know, you were, a, you were a lawyer and now you're an executive coach and a business consultant and, you know, who spends a, a considerable amount of time helping law firms and legal leaders. Um, it's not a normal thing that I see in the industry of executive coaching. How did that happen? I always wanted to be a lawyer, at least as long as I can remember. And I'm old enough that I've seen the Perry Mason reruns. I didn't see the originals, but I've seen the reruns. And uh, I was always fascinated, you know, by by the by the show. And what I thought was the power of that lawyers held in our society. And, and I think my suspicions was accurate in those days. And so the idea of becoming a lawyer was pretty significant for me. I ultimately did go to Northwestern Law School and I did become a lawyer. And I was working at a firm called Rudnick and Wolf that is the firm that um, started the whole merger mania that turned into what's now one of the 10 largest law firms in the world, and that's DLA Piper. And at the time it started to do these mergers, it, it literally was the largest firm. And so I had an opportunity to practice law in a large law firm that was in the process of becoming a gigantic law firm. And I realized that um, there were many parts of that practice that were exciting to me, like being on trial. I was a litigator. There's many parts of that practice that were just boring to me, like doing discovery. And that was before we had what they call e-discovery, electronic discovery, where now, you know, you could have millions and millions of documents on a very simple case that you need to be somehow reviewed. And so over time, I decided that um, practicing law wasn't the best use of my talents and that some of my talents actually hurt me in terms of the practice of law. Well, some were helpful, some were, were not so helpful. And so I decided I was going to make a move and I wanted to move into a very senior leadership role. And this was before the dot-com era. So there was no 30-year-old CEOs um, when I was looking to make this move. And as a result, I decided I'm going to look in the not-for-profit sector. And I spent almost two years looking and finally found an interesting um, offer to run Habitat for Humanity in Chicago. And uh, once I realized that it looked like a really good opportunity, I went ahead and resigned from my law firm and went and worked at Habitat for Humanity for four years and a little over four years. And in that time, one of the things that I discovered was that I had this really young, very talented, very energetic staff, none of whom were trained to do any of the jobs that they were doing, including me. And because we were a very large urban Habitat affiliate, as opposed to the typical suburban Habitat affiliate, we actually were running multiple businesses, including a real estate development company that helped other not-for-profits. We had a big major warehouse that also provided materials to other not-for-profits. That's a common thing for Habitat now, but in those days, it really wasn't. So anyway, I learned quickly I was not going to ever be good enough, nor were any of my people going to be good enough to do what we need to do based on our, our education and training. We just didn't have that. 
And so as a result, I learned that I had to figure out how to support people so they could be as effective as possible and then find other resources to help us. And that's where the whole idea of coaching started to come about. I didn't know it was a thing in those days. I did, though, realize that the the best thing I could do for the managers of various um, businesses that we had within Habitat was to help them succeed. And as a result of that, um, I started to try to do that. At the same time, my board wanted me to go to business school to learn how to manage. They said that they hired me because I was an effective leader, but I wasn't an effective manager. And they wanted me to learn to manage. And they thought business school was where you do that. Um, little did they know that's not what you learn in business school, but it worked out <laughs> well for me. I love the experience. It was great. And while I was there, I had access to high-speed internet for the first time. I mean, we're talking T1 lines, which back in those days was a big deal. And one of my friends started telling me a lot about this whole coaching industry. And she was on Wall Street. She said, like, you got to do this, John. Like, it's it's who you are. So I started doing some research and decided that she was right. And I then signed up for a coach training program while I was in business school. And um, so I was doing business school in the executive program. So I'm still working in the day. I'm going to school alternate Fridays and Saturdays and doing this coach training program. And I just fell in love with that. I was like, this is the perfect thing for me. This is what I want to do. And so as soon as I finished business school, I was able to wrap some things up at Habitat and then make the jump and start a business. And I was lucky. My, my wife is a practicing lawyer or was a practicing lawyer then. And uh, so we were a two-income family. And it gave me a little bit of security in making the jump and starting a business and not knowing if I was going to make a dime on it. So that's how I got where I am right now. At least that's the beginning of this story. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you another question. Um, I, I was curious whether being in, in your work with law firms... Does it help to be a lawyer? I kind of think, does that, you know, increase your uh, credibility and ability to be effective? I was recently having, um, you know, a conversation actually with my sister-in-law and uh, she she works as a, uh, you know, in the field of uh, parenting and helping parents. And, you know, she encountered a coach who wasn't a parent and we were having this debate about whether they could be effective. And I was just curious, like, as a, as a lawyer, is that something that benefits you in terms of working with law firms? It does benefit me, not for the reason you're going to think. It benefits me because it helps me get a foot in the door. Lawyers trust lawyers, and lawyers also believe that only lawyers can do what lawyers do. And so that can be a bit of a challenge. The reality is you don't need to be a lawyer to coach lawyers. A number of the coaches who are part of my team are not former practicing lawyers. What's really important is not that you have been a lawyer, it's that you have significant experience in that legal industry, in the legal environment, so you understand, for instance, how a lawyer in a corporation earns money versus how a lawyer in a law firm earns money. They're very, very different, and so that's important. So I've seen a number of people who are um, coaches in the legal industry who were never lawyers the ones who have been most successful often, though, are the ones who really have spent time working in the legal industry before they were a coach. They may have been a marketing director or they may have been a professional development person, uh, but some other role. So they got deep insights into the psyche of lawyers, and, and that could be very helpful. And, and for those people who are listening to our podcast and thinking like, hey, I'm a lawyer. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to become a coach. The one thing I will tell you is... If you don't get really good coach training, what happens when you leave your profession, whether it's law, medicine, accounting, anything else, and you start to work with people in that um, profession, if you don't have good coach training, you don't actually coach people, you end up consulting. You tell them what to do. 
And that's not really the essence of what coaching is all about. And so early on, I would say that being a lawyer, working with lawyers required more work on my part because I had to be very conscious not to step into to consultant mode, or I'd at least want to tell the client I'm putting on my consultant hat and, and then I would do so. Now, at this point in my career, I've been doing it so long that I don't need to think about that. All of that happens very naturally, and I don't go into consulting mode unless I really intentionally want to do it. Um, so the long answer to your question is, yes, it's helpful from the perspective of the lawyers. It's not, I think, critical, though, to be successful working with lawyers to have been a lawyer. It's an interesting, interesting point, too, that applies beyond law. That idea that I think a lot of people go into coaching sort of thinking they're going to be consultants. Is there any advice you have for people, um, you know, sort of entering or considering the field of coaching just in terms of, uh, you know, what kind of people or what kind of things you should be attracted to to become a coach? So one of the advantages of coaching, like formal coaching where you've been trained, is that you are not the subject matter expert in the problem that the client is trying to solve. You're trained to be a subject matter expert in language and how to ask questions that shift people's perspectives or give them pause or cause them to think differently or to explore things in, in a new fashion. And that's why coaching, a good coach can work in any profession on a moment's notice. A great coach will probably be a little more effective if they understand the industry. That said, they could still be highly effective. They'll just probably be more effective if they understand the industry. So for those who want to be an expert, like you're great at problem solving and you want to be the expert, I would argue that consulting is a better place for you. And that said, they're not mutually exclusive. So there's lots of coaches, myself included. I basically earn a living with executive coaching, consulting, facilitation, and speaking. And, and so those are all different methodologies. They're all very different from one another. Uh, they all support clients in achieving what it is that they're trying to achieve so that they can work. So sometimes a client just wants an answer. And that would be either a consulting gig or I didn't call it this, but I do some advising where I literally am giving advice and people are paying for that, which is different than the coaching because I'm trained as a coach, I always, though, fall back on my coaching experience and my coach training. And so even when I'm in a consulting engagement, I'm almost always going to bring a lot of my coaching to that. Sometimes clients don't even notice that that's what I'm doing. And other times they're like, hey, wait a minute, I'm paying you. Why are you asking me all these questions? The reality is, though, any great consultant will do a better job when they really understand the essence of the client's problem, not what the client's telling them the problem is, what the essence, you know, the, the root cause of that problem is. And so that's something that I think coaching is very focused on is helping people explore the root causes of their challenges or of the opportunities they're, that they're pursuing and then figuring out how to make it happen. You um, alluded to the idea, I think, uh, that that there've been a lot of changes in law firms, um, you know, law firms have gone through a lot of consolidation over the last few decades. And, you know, there's tremendous pressure on associates and probably less administrative support for many people in law firms. What do you view as sort of the biggest challenges in the legal landscape right now? What's well, interesting, there's a lot of them. And I would say that the one that um, is a huge issue is the issue of attorney well-being. That said, Maybe we can come back to that in a second. There's some structural challenges in the profession that make it very uh, challenging for those who are in it. First of all, it's a profession that's focused on perfectionism. 
And as most of us who are more than about 20 years old know, there is no perfect out there. It's, it's a, it's a, you're, you're pursuing, you know, a, a mirage. It's not going to happen. And as a result of that perfectionism, it is very hard to be open to mistakes. And if you're not open to mistakes, it's impossible to innovate. And that's why for a lot of law firms, it's, it's very, very challenging because they want to innovate. They see opportunities to innovate. And yet culturally, many of them are set up so that you are literally pursuing perfection. And there is very little room for something to not work out. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that's a great point because, you know, in thinking about it in the context of, of leaders as well, there is no handbook, you know. Yeah, uh, being a good leader, you know, there's some principles and qualities that we know are good, humility, integrity, you know, ambition for your your team's success. But, you know, a lot of it really has to do with the organizational context. And, you know, from a personality perspective, if you're unwilling to make mistakes, it's almost impossible to grow. So if that's a defining part of the culture, I think that can be super difficult. You know, I, I think I'm a lot like you in the sense that, you know, my early exposure to law were, were things like uh, Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Matlock for me, Perry Mason reruns, and then eventually, you know, Law and Order and, and Suits. You know, I, I was curious, what are the differences between sort of our public perceptions of what it's like to work in law and, and, and the reality of what it's like to be a lawyer. Yeah, so it's a vast world of, of difference. And it goes back to the first depictions of probably any profession, but certainly of law on TV and in the movies. The producers, you know, if you think about it, if you're doing a movie or you're doing television, your, your job is to entertain an audience. And it's not to necessarily tell a 100% factual story, even if it is a fact-based story. And then once it becomes fiction, like LA Law or Suits, um, you're not really that concerned with getting a lot of facts right. Enough that people will suspend belief and jump in with you, but you're not trying to make it you know, perfectly accurate. And so all of those shows have these little teeny tiny grains of truth in them someplace. And the problem is those things are an exception. They're not the rule. But they're the things that we seize on. So, you know, in the Perry Mason, he would trip up the witness in cross-examination. That almost never happens in real. You know, both sides know exactly what the testimony is going to be. It's a function of trying to persuade the fact finder, whether that's a judge or a jury. It's not finding a fact in the middle of a trial. That, that doesn't happen, uh, at least rarely, if ever, does it happen. But in Perry Mason, every show, that happened, right? In Matlock, you know, yeah. things like that happened. And so that's what makes it exciting. And I think that a lot of people go into law thinking that's going to be glamorous. I can't tell you how many associates I've talked to who don't have a lawyer in their family, which I didn't either, by the way. And they never talked to a lawyer before they went to law school. And even if you're on a scholarship, law school is a very expensive proposition, both in time and in money. And I can't imagine making that big of an investment and not talk to some lawyers. Lots of people who have gone to law school never talked to a lawyer before they went to law school. So they get caught up in this whole idea of the glamour of, of law. If it was as glamorous as we see it on TV, you wouldn't have people leaving the profession in large numbers. You wouldn't have the mental health issues that we have in the profession in such large numbers. And you wouldn't hear all the critiques of the profession that we have if it really was like you see on TV. Right. I remember when I was um, a journalist in New York and, you know, I covered the U.S. Attorney's Office 
and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It was really eye-opening for me, and I've obviously worked with lots of business lawyers since then. Then, And one of the things that stuck out to me was the level of stress. You know, the pay was not what I, you know, aligned with the common descriptions and how unbelievably boring some of the work was. You mentioned discovery work uh, before, but like contract law or, um, or other aspects of it. You know, what do most lawyers do on a day-to-day basis? So one of the, the big fallacies about law, and I fell for this fallacy, by the way, was that it's all about speaking, the ability to speak on your feet. And, um, and that's one of my strengths. So I thought, oh, this is a perfect profession for me. Lawyers are professional writers. It doesn't matter if you're a litigator or if you're a deal lawyer. The vast majority of what you do is is right. Now, yes, you spend a lot of time on the telephone with opposing counsel, with your clients, and then, and then you're writing. And the stand up in front of somebody and making an argument, uh, well, it happens. It's a tiny, tiny part of the job. And so things like reviewing contracts, you know, in some cases, when you're doing a large deal, there could be literally thousands and thousands of contracts. And, you know, with advancement in machine learning and artificial intelligence, there are there is some software that is making huge strides and taking humans out of that contract review. But that still happens. When I was an associate, they would ship people off to warehouse some warehouse in New Jersey. And these poor people, you know, would be there for months at a time reviewing documents. I was lucky. I never got shipped out and had to do <laughs> that duty. Um, but, but people did and people still do. And so I think it's, there's a level of, of just mundaneness to some parts of the practice. And the other part no one ever talks about on TV or rarely is things like billing the client. Like you don't get paid if you don't bill. Very few lawyers um, are on top of their uh, billing in a moment-by-moment basis. Even with software that helps you figure things out, like when you're on the phone with the client, the computer automatically knows that that's this client and, and it can be programmed to capture that time for you. That's something that's super boring, super painful for most lawyers. And there's a small but significant percentage of them who get their time turned in 30 days or more after the fact, which means you really have to start questioning do they even know accurately what they spent time on? The other thing that never shows up on TV in a, in a really meaningful way is things like having to give just routine feedback to other lawyers that you're working with, how you're managing the paralegals and legal assistants who are working with you, who are an integral part of your team. In fact, they're the ones who actually help make all the work happen. They need support. They need feedback. You know, that's something that, you know, is not seen as um, very glamorous by many lawyers. And unless you're a big rainmaker, even participating in business development is often seen as, you know, drudgery um, by many lawyers, not all, but by many lawyers. And so there's a whole lot of the job that you don't see very much of on TV. And when you do see it on TV, they still find a way to make it look really glamorous. Like you're doing business development by taking a client to the Super Bowl. Very few lawyers ever take a client to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I um, I remember when my brother, he uh, came out of college went into intellectual property law, law and he was at a big law firm and they said, Hey, one of the perks here is that you can take off as much time as you want. And <laughs> then followed by that was as long as you bill 2080 hours uh, a year, which is like f- full time, no vacation. And so, you know, I think that a lot of the realities on the financial side, a lot of the realities to your point about feedback because it's really impossible for an organization to improve without 
feedback. Um, you know, there's this alternative view of lawyers sort of as ambulance chasers or, you know, other aspects, but I've always really felt my entire life that lawyers, the rule of law, you know, without it, democracy can't really be um, effective. And, you know, I, I'm just curious, just in thinking about the last few years and the role that lawyers have played in the things like the Trump impeachment or other aspects of our life or society, how important do you think law is to democracy? I think it's critical to democracy. And, you know, unfortunately, we had to have a bit of a wake up call here in the United States. Our, our, the American Bar Association, as an example, has a rule of law organization built into it. And it spends a lot of its time focusing on the rule of law in other countries. And there's a little bit of a you know, arrogance that we have as Americans about, you know, our great democracy. And so we just had an opportunity to see a very real um, challenge um, to that democracy. And I think that lawyers, um, that's a good case study, by the way, um, because lawyers played roles on both sides. There were some smart lawyers who came up with a whole bunch of strategies that were an attempt to undermine democracy. And fortunately, those strategies failed, but they came, it looks like right now from what we're hearing, they came really, really close to succeeding. And there was other lawyers who, you know, employed strategies and tactics to make sure that that didn't happen. And I think that that is critical. And I think over the years that follow, we're going to see more and more lawyers taking lessons from um, those situations and applying them. I think that one of the things that is really, you know, for me, interesting is just looking at how lawyers show up in our society. So obviously in the private law firm, that's what we think about when we see these TV shows. Um, sometimes government lawyers like the, the special prosecutor um, TV shows and things like that. Um, but mostly it's the private lawyers. And that's not typical of how the average private lawyer, you know, practices. The average private lawyer is out there in middle America, rural America, doing all sorts of different things for all sorts of different types of clients, not the big glamorous, you know, closing a deal for a Fortune 100 company. You know, they're doing stuff to help the their next door neighbor adopt a child or buy a new building for so they can expand their farm or something like that, right? So that's really what the average lawyer does. But if you look outside of what those lawyers often are doing in their day job, it's interesting because we see lawyers in all three branches of our government. Obviously, the judiciary, it makes sense. You're supposed to be a lawyer to be, you know, a judge. Um, but we see them in the executive branch. We see tons of lawyers in the legislative branch. And there's definitely an argument that we probably have too many um, there. But that's what lawyers do. They get involved in places. And then if you look at the not-for-profit sector in the United States and the larger non-governmental organization sector across the world, when you look at both board positions and executive leadership positions, there's a lot of lawyers in those roles. You look at civic society, and there's a lot of lawyers in those roles. It's very hard to find any significant part of our society that lawyers are not playing a role, whether it's their vocation or their avocation, they're playing an important role. So I really do think lawyers, we have a special responsibility to our society. As lawyers, we have a special privilege with our law license that grants us to do things that other people cannot do. And I think with that privilege comes a responsibility. I personally am grateful that many, many lawyers step up and really choose to take on that responsibility. And they do it in quiet ways that don't necessarily get them on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And it makes a difference in how you and I and everybody else 
gets to experience democracy in our country. And so I do think lawyers do a very powerful and important um, set of activities in our society. And I hope that they will keep doing it. And that's why I do what I do to try to encourage them so that they can be more effective as they step out and lead in, in our society. You can really see it in countries like Russia or other places that don't have a real strong uh, rule of law. You can't trust anything. You can't trust the contract you sign. You can't trust uh, that you're going to receive fair treatment in the courts. And that lack of trust really causes uh, democracy, that lack of being able to rely on things to sort of fall apart. Do you have any legal heroes or models yourself? Well, I do. Some of whom, you know, are are famous, like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I will admit to being a, uh, a huge fan of hers. And I, and Same I, miss, here. And I miss her passing. Um, there was a judge that I got to do some work with when I was a very young lawyer named Seymour Simon. He was a member of the Illinois Supreme Court. At the time, he was famous for probably having written more dissents, I think, than anybody else had ever done. I don't know if that's accurate fact, but I remember that was the, the shtick about Seymour. And he was an amazing, amazing person. He was very open. He was very inclusive. He was always looking to pull people into, you know, his circle. He was always looking to help educate whether you were a lawyer or not. He wanted to make sure you understood, you know, what the law was and, and how it operated. He was very much thinking about the law from the perspective of our, our, our society, in his case, Illinois, a state as opposed to the nation, because he didn't have that type of power as an Illinois Supreme Court judge, but he was thinking about it beyond just, you know, what mattered to an individual um, person. He was a kind person. Uh, and so Seymour is, you know, somebody that a lot of people listening to this may have heard of, is definitely one of those legal heroes. And then I will tell you, I've got a bunch of clients who no one has heard of outside of their law firm and outside of their client base, who are very quietly making the lives of lawyers better. And as they make the lives of lawyers better, and I don't mean richer, by the way, I mean, actually making it better so that they can be more fulfilled and do a better job in their jobs. There are people out there that I've had the privilege of working with, and hopefully there's some out there that I'm going to have the privilege of working with, who really are working to make a difference. And they see their job as leaders as their first job. Uh, and that's one of the challenges the private practice of law has is that for most firms, or many firms anyway, the leaders have a, a, a primary job, which is to still practice law. And it's a secondary job to, to actually lead. And because leading is so difficult, many of them default into managing, which is really, really important. But in a big law firm in particular, they've paid a bunch of really talented people to manage various aspects of the business. And these are all people who are trained in those aspects of the business. None of the lawyers are trained. Yet lawyers tend to default into management because that's easier to measure. It, it can happen in a shorter cycle, you know, it can happen faster in the moment, whereas leadership, you see the results over longer periods of time. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between management and leadership? Sure. And one of the things, I'll just give you a simple example that's uh, it's a little unfair because it's a simple gross simplification. It's something I hear a lot in the law firms that they'll talk about. Our managing partner is great. He makes the trains run on time. So making the trains run on time is a management function. It's taking an existing um, structure. It's an existing vision for what you, you, know, you have. And then managing the assets, in this case, people, the trains, maybe figuring out what ticketing software you're going to use. So the trains run on time. And that's something that is easy to get your head wrapped around. It's not easy, but it's easy to get your head wrapped around that idea. So now we come to the leadership and we want to think about 
where do those trains go? Should we actually be running those trains to all the places that they've traditionally gone? Does it still make sense? Let's take it a little bit deeper. Should we be using trains for some of this? Maybe we should be using over-the-road trucks, or maybe we should be putting people on airplanes for some of these routes. Maybe we shouldn't serve these you know, communities anymore, period. So leadership for me is really a lot about change and helping people figure out how they are going to create the change that will let them accomplish a vision that they and their leaders have for the future. And management's critically important. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're both really, really important. But leadership is really that idea about change and helping get to some different version of the future. Management is about how you hold that process together in the moment, in the status quo. So everything, you know, the wheels just don't come off, right? You can't change if you're in chaos in the moment. And so management is critical. So truly really driving that vision and purpose and, you know, leading change and navigating the ambiguity and sort of being able to predict what might be coming. I did have a, a another question for you. You know, a lot of um, journalists, healthcare workers, and lawyers, I imagine, seem to, uh, you know, get into their professions often for very noble reasons, you know, but sometimes that seems to break down. I remember uh, covering Hurricane Katrina and the healthcare workers, um, and you saw a similar thing in COVID, were forced to do triage, forced to make compromises, forced to abandon patients. You know, I, I think there are elements of that that you can see in, you know, the political arena um, where a lawyer has to advocate against something, you know, that sort of runs against the original reasons why they uh, got into the profession. And there's this new concept that has been studied in the sort of psychological and mental health arena. And it's this concept called moral injury. It's somewhat distinct from things like acute stress or or post-traumatic stress disorder. But, you know, it often leads to anger, stress, but also people becoming lost, sort of losing their feeling like they've lost their purpose. And, you know, it's something that's probably post-COVID uh, weighing on a lot of workers. Do you think that's something that can impact lawyers? Absolutely. I think it can impact, as you point out, it can impact anyone. And I think a lot of lawyers do go to law school because of a noble cause. I think by the time they get out of law school, some of that has fallen away. And certainly uh, when they start practicing law, whether it's for a two-person shop in their hometown or, you know, a mega international um, law firm, I think that when they start practicing, sometimes even more of that noble um, thought go, leaves them. That doesn't mean, by the way, that their values leave them. It means what they think they're going to do in the law may change. So the person says, I'm going to grow up and be a public defender because I want to help those who don't have anyone to help them. And then they go to work as a public defender. And in most cases, they realize that the prosecutors who are literally doing the same job for the, the, the state um, are better paid and better resourced. And they're in a highly stressful situation. And people sometimes stay in those jobs for 20 years and sometimes leave in two years because of, of that stress. So I think that this whole idea of moral injury is... And I haven't studied this, Jason, so I, I may be off on this, but as, as I understand it from our conversations, I think the whole idea of moral 
injury is in part where people feel like they are forced to compromise their values, something that's really important um, to them. And I am not convinced that that is something that you ever have to do. I think it's something that you choose to do. And I'm sure we could come up with some scenarios where you could, you know, get me to admit that like in that one situation, yes, you're forced to do it. But as a general rule, I just don't think that's right. I think that most of us aren't clear on our values. So when we end up in a situation where they're being compromised, mm -hmm. we know something's wrong, but we don't know what, and we don't know why. And in some cases, you might work someplace for five to 10 years before you start to figure out like, oh, this is just so contrary to my value system. And that's what creates that stress and that moral injury. Do you think that there, and I completely agree with you on that point, I think we'd probably you know, spend a lot of time thinking about our behaviors and our competencies. We spend a lot of time even thinking about our experiences and our resume, and we spend time thinking about you know, some folks thinking about our personalities, but we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about our values. We sort of feel like they're embedded in. Um, I, and I remember when I was growing up, I had a minister who once told me that if you're driving on the highway at 60 miles an hour and you see a car broken down on the side of the road, you're going to be going so fast, you're not going to have time to make the decision to stop and help that person. So you need to decide in advance um, what do you value and what are you going to do in those situations? And that was obviously a metaphor, but I think what he was trying to get us to do was really think about our values before we're confronted with situations that might compromise them. Do you think that there's some incentives in the legal profession that, you know, whether it's in law firms or prosecutors' offices or public defenders' offices, you know, some sort of perverted incentives that sort of lead to these kinds of situations, this testing of people's values? I certainly think there can be some, and some of it is more recent than, than others. But I think that just the whole idea of focusing on things like the billable hour, which people have been saying the billable hour is going to die for, I don't know, the last 30 years, and it's not close to dying. So I'm not one of those people that says it's going to die. That said, I think the focus on recording time as, the, as opposed to a focus on getting a particular result can create some perverse incentives. You are actually incented to be less efficient at getting something done. And especially if you're you know, in an environment where the deadlines can be managed, you really have an incentive to take a lot of time to get something done. On the other hand, if you're going to trial and you know the judge is very inflexible on you know rescheduling uh, a trial date, you have a very hard deadline in some cases. And so it's not because you want to be efficient. It's because you know you're not going to get more time, so you got to figure out how to get it done. That's not really a great way to um, get people to, to do their best work and do the work in, um, that's consistent with their value system. And then I think there's a lot of pressure that increasingly has come on about making as much money as possible. The whole idea of you know, a private law firm of net distributable income, that's a bad phrase in my, um, in my head because it tells me that that person is really thinking about how much money do I pull out of this law firm and nothing right. else. You know, and you know, we take an oath as lawyers and as part of our training, we, we, we're told about our obligations to our client and also to a greater obligation you know, to, to society at large. And I think that that focus on money that is increasingly strong in some firms, not all firms, by the way, some firms, I think that that focus can cause people to have a conflict with their value system. 
you know, for some people, they never get their head wrapped around that one of the things that happens in most law firms is you're going to represent certain types of um, clients that you personally may not like. And for me, my great lesson there was always looking at the work of the ACLU. When I was at Northwestern, the Nazis were going to march in Skokie, and the ACLU played a key role in, you know, litigating and arguing that, you know, if you pull a permit and you can and you perform consistent with the conditions of the permit you should be allowed to march now no one in the aclu liked the nazis message they felt that they had an obligation as lawyers to advance the cause of those or at least advance the rights not the cause the rights of those who otherwise were not going to have their their you know opportunity to exercise their rights and so for me personally, did I like all of my clients? No. But did it create a big moral conflict for me? You know, it, it really didn't because of things like what I learned watching people who I got to know over the years at places like the ACLU and other organizations. I had a very similar experience. I, you know, when I was in middle school, I grew up in Cobb County, Georgia, and just north of us, the KKK was uh, planning a march in Forsyth County, Georgia. And, you know, I was immensely bothered by the fact that, you know, civil rights-oriented uh, groups were supporting their march. And many years later, a New York uh, lawyer, a prominent New York lawyer that I had uh, become close with, you know, made the point to me that you have to see the big picture. Because the same laws that allow the KKK to march in Skokie or in Forsyth County, Georgia, also allow you to share your opinion and to fight for the topics that you value. So I've always thought that just like you were talking about leadership, being able to see the big picture in any profession is super important. You know, you can see the same things in Katrina, um, you know, where, uh, you know, a psychologist I, I once worked with who worked for the Red Cross, you know, was telling the story of having to leave a patient and, you know, there's some suspicion that that patient was euthanized, but leaving a patient in the hospital so you could save the other patients. And, you know, she always encouraged me to keep my eye on the big picture. Does, does that make sense to you? It, it, it does. And, you know, I think in Katrina, we want to be a little bit careful because I think there is some evidence that there were some people that were euthanized. And I think that goes against the basic tenet of being a doctor, first do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um and so their Hippocratic Oath has some constraints on their behavior. Everything I've seen, though, in the Hippocratic Oath and that I've seen in terms of the ethics of doctors making, say, triage decisions, does not suggest that the doctor does not need to make triage decisions. And that sometimes those decisions mean that one person is not going to live and that another person may live, may not, but may live because of that triage decision. And one of the challenges, I guess I would say to, to lawyers, to doctors, to anybody that's thinking about the moral injury is it's not just the big picture. It's really understanding, like, what is the nature of the job? And you might be a family practitioner thinking you'll never be in an emergency situation. Katrina is a good example, though, where some family practitioners, internal medicine folks ended up in a very critical emergency situation and have to, you know, do the work that maybe an emergency room doctor is used to doing every day. Now, suddenly they have to do it on one day. And that one day is the day they've got to make a decision about evacuating patients because of impending, you know, hurricane. And that's reality. Yeah. And you certainly see that in law. I I remember, um, you know, hearing the story from an attorney who was, 
sitting in a courtroom waiting, you know, for an arraignment and, um, you know, defendant didn't have an attorney and the judge just pointed to him and was like, you're going to represent this person right now. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he did minor cases. And at least for that day, he was, um, you know, representing an accused murderer. And, you know, the point that he made was that was not something I ever thought I would be in the position um, to do. So that concept of like preparing for scenarios that you may not necessarily think uh, will land on your plate, but by the nature of your your profession, it may come up. You know, and really thinking about that in the context of your values sounds like it's a important thing to do. I I was shocked recently. I I recently read that lawyers have some of the highest rates of um, depression uh, uh, compared to other professions. But then I thought about it, and you know, I, I I'm I'm a fan of David Latt's uh, blog Above the Law. Yep. I read some of those stories about what happens in big law and it it almost made more sense to me. And I'm curious, what do you, um, what do you think firms and other legal offices can do to improve the mental well-being of their employees? So it's a great question. And it's one that I'm, I'm pleased that the industry is really trying to focus on right now. And just as a quick aside, the stories that David often covers in Above the Law are often about big law, not always, but often about big law. Small law has the same challenges. Um, they just express themselves differently. So there are many two, three-person lawyer law firms that have two or three staff, and the head lawyer is barely making their mortgage payment. And as a result, treating people inappropriately and maybe doing some things, you know, cutting some corners and things like that. So while we read about, you know, these horrible things happening in big law, they actually happen across the profession. They just show up a little bit differently. And one of the things that's really helpful is there's people like um, Larry Richards, who's a um, former practicing lawyer, wasn't successful doing it, wanted to figure out more about that, went and got a, you know, psychology degree. And now he actually studies lawyers. Uh, and so the more people that are studying the profession, the more they can gain insights that the profession can then use to help itself. So as an example, you know, amongst his findings are things like, you know, the whole practice of the private practice of law is highly autonomous. Uh, there's not a lot of teams. There's a lot of bodies sometimes, but it's still, it's a lot of autonomous work, not a lot of teamwork. A lot of lawyers are highly introverted. Lots of lawyers are highly resistant to change, Right. There's this huge push for the pursuit of perfection. I mean, that's a norm in, in many legal you know, environments. So all of those things create this very challenging environment to not end up with some challenges. So, so for instance, highly autonomous, it's great. You get to decide what work you do. It's also bad because you can be very isolated very quickly. And then if you're pursuing perfection and you're resist- resistant to change, you can be disrupted very easily, which I see happening right now in the industry and has been happening for years, both alternative legal service providers and also very small law firms led by tech-savvy um, lawyers are really disrupting small pieces of business that other larger firms typically have focused on. And that creates huge stresses. Another challenge is the culture itself um, promotes some self-destructive behavior. Um, it's not as bad as maybe what we sometimes hear about the tech industry. And I'm not saying that that's accurate, what we hear about the tech industry, but certainly there's a cultural proclivity toward a focus on use of substance as part of celebration. The culture um, supports isolation. This culture supports 
putting the practice of law above all else, including self, family, friends, etc. That's all bad, you know, from my perspective in terms of are you going to consistently turn out healthy people and keep yeah. them healthy? And those are interesting points about stress. And, you know, you know, one of my specialties is uh, stress and leadership and what causes people to derail. And, you know, in the sort of research in that space, one of the things that's very clear to us is that, you know, people often derail because of personality characteristics. Everybody has some aspect of element, you know, potential derailment, but where we find it showing up the most, you know, the impact of stress and sort of uh, how we derail under stress, it happens most with your, you know, the people you have power over. So you're subordinates, your child, your goldfish, you know, could you talk a little bit about the role that sort of, uh, you know, you talked about that idea of innovation and leading change. And, you know, do you think stress sort of pulls both pulls legal leaders off the ball and also creates some of these cultural problems? I, I think it does. And I think that one of the, the things that's exciting about where we live right now in terms of research and the use of MRIs to look inside the human brain while you're doing things, uh, and then looking at all of the very interesting work that has come out of UPenn's whole School of Positive Psychology and then all of the other institutions around the planet that have kind of followed that that lead is we're learning things. So for instance, with stress, one of the things that I've um, read some research uh, that interestingly enough, started with its first research subjects being in the military and has since expanded far beyond that, looking at stress and saying that the solutions to unacceptably high levels of stress or levels of stress in which the you know average person is unable to manage it is something that has to be addressed on a systemic level, not on the individual level, which is a very different approach than what we normally see. We normally hear people talking about like, oh, John is so stressed out. We better have him go talk to the, you know, the psychologist in our EAP. And what they're determining is that the real solutions, the sustainable long-term solution is not how do we get John some help? It's how do we change our structure, our process, our systems, so that that level of stress is not endemic. And that's something that obviously takes a lot of work and people are studying it. The other thing that's really exciting to me in terms of looking at stress, and remember, stress is good when it forces us, it challenges us to grow. Um, none of us would get stronger, smarter, you know, take on a new challenge if we didn't, you know, experience some stress that helps push us in that direction. It's when we cannot successfully and appropriately manage the stress that has all these negative impacts on us. And one of the exciting things that I've seen probably in the last, I don't know, five or six years in the legal industry is the shift away from the lawyer assistance program, which as the name implies, is like, we're going to go help this poor sod who's you know got a problem, into the attorney well-being approach. And it's more than a semantic shift. It really is, how do we focus on helping all of the people in this profession, lawyers and the lot and lots and lots of staff people in these profession in this profession as well. How do we help them live a happy life, be fulfilled in what they do at work, to respond appropriately to stress, and to know how to um, step away when they're not going to be able to manage that stress? And I think the approach of coming from the positive instead of coming from the negative is attracting a lot more people. And one of the pieces of evidence I have for this is. Gina Cho is a former practicing attorney who was one of the early people that tried to bring mindfulness practices, in particular meditation, 
into law firms. And when she first started out, she thought she was going to get like laughed out of the firm. Nobody was going to show up for, you know, the work, first workshop she was doing. Um, her book is a big hit. Her workshops have, you know, sold incredibly well. She's a, she's a popular speaker. And she found that there was a place in big law and in small law for thinking about things like mindfulness as a tool to help us manage the stress and to help us respond more appropriately to things, the, the stimuli that are coming at us. And I'm hopeful that there's going to be more people like Gina, and there are, there's many coming into the industry now that are really committed to trying to help lawyers figure out how to you know, be successful, happy, fulfilled, because the evidence is, is there that when they are that way, they do better work. And right, the work they right. do impacts you and me and how we live our lives every day, whether it's pursuing opportunities or being able to live where we want to live or marry who you want to marry or anything like that. That stuff happens because of lawyers. Right. You know, some of what you said about the focus on sort of expertise and perfectionism, you know, and also the comments that you made about the military, you know, in the military, you have clear career paths, you know, and a second lieutenant you know, maybe leading a large group of people very early in their career when they're in their 20s. But in professions like law or even in technology and healthcare also fits in this bucket, the early part of your career is almost focused on practicing the craft, you know, clinical expertise in, um, in healthcare and your, you know, subject matter expertise in some area of law and law. You know, they spend a lot of time early career not focused on leadership. And, you know, I was just wondering from your perspective, you know, for the people who run law firms or run other legal offices, what what advice would you have um, for them in terms of preparing people for roles in leadership? So it's a tragic mistake that law firms make is that they don't start to prepare people for roles in leadership in many cases ever, there are managing partners of thousand plus lawyer firms that have had zero formal leadership training. Now, when you get to that level, you've read a lot, you've talked to a lot of people, so you're getting some informal education. Um, but there are many in, in that space that have not had formal leadership education. And there's others in that space that have had that formal leadership education that's come very late in their careers. And so there's a missed opportunity. And one of the challenges that you know every leader of a major law firm that I've ever spoken with points out to me is, yeah, I'd love to get associates thinking and practicing, you know, some leadership skills. How do I do that when I still need to make sure that they bill? And oh, by the way, our clients don't want us charging out our first and sometimes even our second year lawyers on work for them. So I still got to pay them and the salaries keep going up and I have to find ways to, you know, make that happen. And yet you're telling me, John, that I should be spending some time helping them learn to be a more effective leader. And I would say, yes, that's exactly your challenge as a leader of this organization is to figure out the calculus where you can determine that there is something you can do at the very earliest levels to start teaching some basic leadership thinking and then ideally some basic leadership skills. And so that as people progress, they're constantly learning. Right now, what happens is you're an associate. And then if you get lucky, 8, 10, 12 years in, depending on the law firm, you get voted into the partnership. And suddenly you're expected to go from being an individual contributor, like a producer of work, to a manager of other people and someone who brings in work. And then if you're diverse or if you've shown a lot of leadership potential, 
you're also then expected to take the next job a year or two later and lead something for that organization. Again, you're still practicing law, you're still managing people, and now you're expected to lead. And it creates this you know, very challenging situation that we see in professional services where most people in those jobs are still doing their original day job, in this case, practicing law. We don't really see that in corporate America nearly as much. What happens there, if you're a lawyer at Apple, for instance, is you will be given experiences and opportunities to do things besides practicing law early. And one of the biggest testaments I've seen is I was at a presentation at Microsoft a number of years ago, and I walked in a few minutes late, and I listened to the remaining you know, 80 minutes of a 90-minute you know, panel discussion. And I couldn't tell at the end of that program who was a lawyer on the panel and who was one of the business people on the panel. And after it was over, I asked somebody and they smiled and they said, every single person up there was a lawyer. Wow. And that's a testament to what Microsoft was doing to give its lawyers opportunities to do more than just practice law. And that doesn't happen in law firms until you make partner. And even then, sometimes it doesn't happen for many, many years. Yeah. The... Um you know, in thinking about all that we've been talking about, what do you think the risk is if the legal profession doesn't transform or doesn't change in some of these areas? I think the big risk is that it's going to, it's already being disrupted and it's going to continue to be disruptive, uh, disrupted. And what's super obvious is that the big accounting firms are increasingly moving closer and closer to practicing law in the United States. They already hire more lawyers than, you know, worldwide than, you know, the biggest law firms in the United States. And they're increasingly doing things, either practicing with um, law through subsidiaries or through other organizations. That's going to be highly disruptive because one of the things that those organizations do really well is kind of that run the company work they're very efficient. They have systems. They have processes in place. And while they may not be as efficient as, as some, they're more efficient than the average law firm. So that's going to be disruptive. The other thing that's going to be disruptive, if law doesn't figure this out, is that increasingly people who are entrepreneurs, especially with a technology background, are looking at one small little slice of law and saying, we can do it better. We can do it more efficiently. And we can actually get better results. And then they start tackling that. Um, and then lo and behold, they actually do get better results. Like the e-discovery companies, for instance, have proven they can do it better with software than we can do it with a bunch of really smart, highly educated people sitting in a warehouse in New Jersey. And as a result, the disruption is going to continue to happen there as well. The big loss for this is not just going to be for the legal profession. It's going to be for all of us because as this disruption happens, I don't think there's going to be that same focus on that commitment to the client and the commitment to society and the commitment to the rule of law. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. I just think it probably won't be that way. And that's going to be a loss for all of us because those lawyers who have some basic education you know, in that area and are focused on that because maybe somebody they work with keeps them focused on it may no longer be in those jobs. It may be someone with a completely different mindset and a completely different focus in that place and in the long run, we all may lose because of that. So I do hope the profession can start to figure this out and, and start to make some very significant changes. John, I just wanted to check to see if you had anything you wanted to close, any closing thoughts um, for our listeners. Well, I think that, you know, one of the most important things to remember about the, the profession is I, I truly think it is a great profession. 
I'm proud to be a lawyer. I don't practice law anymore. I haven't practiced in a really, really long time. Uh, and yet I still retain a law license and I still do continuing legal education. And I do think it's a very important profession. It is the key to many of our freedoms and privileges in this country. And I think that, you know, one of the big challenges that we don't understand when we look at TV is that right now, the very wealthy are very well served by the legal profession. The destitute are somewhat well served by the profession. In this huge group in the middle, from you know the working class to maybe the, the middle class, are actually left out in many instances of the legal process and, and legal opportunities. And I think that's something that the profession is working on. It's not like this is news to them. The profession knows lots of people are talking about this. But this whole idea of access to justice is not about the poorest of the poor. It's about folks that are definitely up on a higher income level. And I think that's one of those things that as we think about the profession, uh, we want to keep thinking about how do we solve for that so that we can truly be a democracy uh, and a justice system that works for everybody, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, that it works for everybody, as opposed to those at the very lowest ends and those at the very highest end. And hopefully we're going to do that. John, I just wanted to thank you for uh, joining us for this really insightful conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. Thank you, Jason. It's been fun. Yeah, I really enjoy it, like every conversation that I have with you. <laughs> thank you. And I, I want to thank all the listeners for joining us for this conversation with John, the Purple Coach Mitchell. You know, we're looking forward to being with you all again next week for the next episode. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. <laughs>